Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, for better or worse, I look the same this morning. Jake, of course, was unrecognizable. And in many ways, Aaron was as well. In what can only be described as dancing rather than leading the choir. We'll talk about that this week. It was clear that the choir enjoyed that song and we enjoyed listening to it. It is officially Thanksgiving week, so our minds naturally think of all of the things associated with this holiday. Stuffing ourselves with stuffing and turkey and ham and all the other sides and pies. Perhaps our focus is on our travel plans and the excitement that we have, which is building, because we get to see folks that perhaps we haven't seen in quite a while. Or we're looking forward to a few days off of work, watching television, whatever you like to watch, whether that's football or Hallmark movies. But none of these things are the reason that Thanksgiving started, nor the focal point of this holiday. Thanksgiving was first declared a holiday by George Washington in 1789 and was made an annual holiday in 1863 by Abraham Lincoln. In Washington's first proclamation of Thanksgiving, he said this, It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and to humbly implore His protection and favor. He went on to express that Thanksgiving was a time for service to God, a time for thanks for the protection of God, and a time to ask God to pardon our national and other transgressions. I think you can see how far we have strayed from the original intent of Thanksgiving. When the truth of the matter is, come this Thursday, there will be many homes that do not acknowledge God at all, nor thank Him for their blessings. Now, we, of course, ought to be different. We are the ones who genuinely know the Lord, and therefore we ought to be gathering as families and friends to thank Him for His benefits, to thank Him for His protection, and to seek His forgiveness. And to give us some direction for that, we are going to look at another psalm this morning about thanksgiving. This one is Psalm 100. Now, you might be thinking... Didn't you talk about Thanksgiving last week? So why are you talking about it again? And to that, I would answer a couple of things. Number one, thank you for remembering what I talked about last week. Sometimes I don't even remember what the sermon was on last week. So if that was your initial thought, that's a good thing. Secondly, I would say that we have no problem with three or even four week series on Christmas, so why would we have a problem with two Sundays on Thanksgiving? And I have every reason to believe that none of us perfectly and consistently applied what we talked about last week. And so if that's the case, that we still have work to be done in this area, then there's nothing wrong with preaching on it again. 
Besides, a topic as important as this surely can handle consecutive Sundays. So today we are going to be talking about giving thanks from Psalm 100. Before we even read it, you will notice there is a heading again. I mentioned to you last week that these headings are not inspired. They are added there later by someone else to help us understand the, the setting or the context. But this one, all it says is a psalm for giving thanks. We do not know who wrote it nor anything about the context of its writing other than it clearly talks about the people gathering for worship and singing praise to God because they are thankful in their hearts. And frankly, we don't need any more background than that because the focus is not on the background of this psalm. The focus is on God being the rightful recipient of thanks. Now, if I might just for a moment jump ahead to Christmas. Sometimes when it comes to the Christmas season, we, we think about getting a gift for someone, and it's difficult. We don't know what to get them. And sometimes we even say, I don't know what to get so-and-so because they have anything they want. They have enough money to buy whatever it is they want, and so they need nothing. So what do you get someone who already has everything they want, and therefore they don't need anything? And we might translate that over to God and say, what in the world could we get or give to God who already owns everything and yet he has done so much for us, therefore we want to express through giving something to God? And the answer is this, we can give him thanks. And that's what this psalm tells us to do. So let's read Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Three things we want to see this morning. The first is this, that giving thanks fosters our worship of God. We see this in the first two verses, and we see it through multiple terms. The psalm begins, make a joyful noise. That's from the ESV. Some of your translations, I don't know which one you're using, there are many good translations, but some of your translations may actually say, shout for joy. Now, that does not mean that we should yell and scream like you may have done yesterday at the ball game. The emphasis is not on the volume of our voice. The emphasis is on the attitude in which we are doing it, and that is joyful. And then we see in verse 2 that we are to do so in gladness. And therefore, in verse 2 also, we see the word singing, which implies joy. So all of this paints a picture of believers who have gathered together in worship to express our thanks to God and doing so with joy. Now, worship, unfortunately, in the minds of many people, have been, has been reduced to the style of songs that we sing. And so we talk about different styles of worship and which ones we like or don't like. Now, clearly, singing is involved as it is mentioned in verse 2. But again, even there, the emphasis is on the attitude with which we come. 
We have a reason for joy, which we'll talk more about in a moment. But joy should characterize our meetings. We should not be here this morning out of duty or tradition. Worship ought not to be a drudgery that we force ourselves into and through. Worship should be something that we do with joy. Yes, I understand there are times when we come before God sullen and repentant over our sins. But there also ought to be plenty of times when we gather with hearts filled with joy because of who God is and what he has done for us. So when we talk about being thankful to God, and we have every reason to be, it leads to joyful worship. You've probably said or heard somebody say, I didn't get anything out of worship today. And what we mean when we say that is one of two things. Either I did not like the song selection, it wasn't my style or my preference, and therefore I didn't get anything out of it, or the sermon was not as good as it ought to have been, or at least not as applicable to my life at this very moment. In either case, when we say, I didn't get anything out of worship this morning, the emphasis is primarily on the outward. It is someone else's fault. Whoever chose the songs, whoever sang the songs, whoever preached the sermon, it is their fault that I did not get something out of worship today. And while that certainly can be true, perhaps there's another reason, an internal reason. You see, the connection is clear here in our psalm. If we do not have thankful hearts, then we will not come and have joyful worship. And that does not start the moment we walk into this sanctuary on a Sunday morning. It starts long before that. It is too late to have a thankful heart when you walk in here. That's something that must be cultivated all week long so that when you come to this first day of the week and the gathering of the believers, you already have that thankful heart because you've been walking with God all week long and praising him for who he is and what he's done. Therefore, you gather with others who have presumably done the th same thing and you you have the result of joyful music or worship, uh, making a joyful noise. Now, I want you to notice a second element here that we don't often put together with joyful worship. Verse 2, it says there, serve with gladness. The connection that we don't often make is that serving the Lord is a form of worship, and thus it is likewise fostered through giving thanks. If we have thankful hearts and minds before God, then we are going to not only worship him with joy, making that joyful noise, but we are also going to be willingly serving him with gladness. Now, there are, of course, many ways in which we can serve the Lord, both within the church and outside of her. We are all gifted in different ways. All of us are gifted. The Bible makes that very clear. We all have spiritual gifts. They differ in quantity and perhaps even quality, but we all have them, and therefore we all ought to be using them in glad service to the Lord. And therefore we ought to know how we are gifted and conversely what our weaknesses are so that we can recognize what we are passionate about and get involved and gladly serve. Many of you who have been members here for a long time know that we have a long-standing joke around here. And that joke is, if you pass Tim Hopkins in the hallway, do not make eye contact with him. Because if you do, 
Tim is going to ask you to serve in some capacity around here, and you're going to be feel you're going to feel compelled to answer yes. And suddenly, you're involved in some new area of ministry just because you passed Tim in the hallway. Now, Tim's retired, of course, but that's still pretty good advice. However, we should not be serving unwillingly. We should not have to be compelled to serve. No one should have to guilt us into serving the Lord and getting involved. And that is not what I'm attempting to do by the preaching of this sermon. Instead, it is through thankful hearts, hearts filled with giving thanks to God, that leads to faithful service and glad service on behalf of of the Lord, something we saw yesterday with the bags of blessings where there were way too many servants here because so many people wanted to be involved. Now we can also turn the equation around even as we did before. If you are not serving with gladness, then there is a reason. And that reason is probably not the reason that you usually give. I don't have time. I'm not gifted to do anything. I just don't know where I might fit in, or hundreds of other examples. If you are not serving gladly, then it might just be an internal issue where you are not giving thanks to God. Again, we don't usually think in those terms, merely because we've reduced giving thanks to the reciting of a few words. But I hope you recognize I've not been talking about saying any words. I have not been talking about you saying the words, thank you, God, though there is nothing wrong with saying those things. When you gather this week with family, perhaps you do have that tradition of going around the room and saying what you are thankful for before you partake of the meal. And when you do that, it's likely some circumstance, something that God has given you. Or maybe you just say, I am very thankful. But we've seen in the first two verses here that giving thanks to God is far more involved in that. Indeed, it means joyful worship and glad service. And yet there is still yet another element in these two first verses that we've not seen. Giving thanks fosters our worship of God. It fosters our glad service of God. And if those two things are true, then it equally fosters our desire to be in the presence of God. Come into his presence, the psalmist says. Now, in some sense, you might argue that we're always in the presence of God. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible says that there is nowhere to which we may run from God. If we don't want to be in the presence of God, there is nowhere that we can run to avoid the presence of God because God is everywhere, and I understand that. But there is another element here that we need to recognize that we're talking about a conscious decision to come into the presence of God and to do so for worship and service. This takes place corporately as we gather together weekly, like we're doing today. And this is a good opportunity for me to state, and I want you to hear me clearly, it's a good opportunity for me to state that watching our services at home misses out on this community element. Now, I am grateful that we are able to offer the opportunity through technology for those who cannot come, especially during COVID for the many that were unable to come. I'm grateful that we are able to offer that and they can worship with us even right now 
as they are at home. I'm grateful for the people who understand this technology that I don't, and therefore they've been able to provide this service for us. And throughout this, I've even heard people say, well, I'm not missing anything. I don't miss anything by being there because I'm able to watch. And again, I'm grateful that you're able to watch, but you are missing something. You're missing the corporate gathering of the body of believers where we come together to sing the praises of God, which is just not the same at home, and to study the word of God, which is just not the same at home. And of course, you can't get the fellowship of other believers because you are at home. And so we come into the presence of God through prayer, both corporate and private. And by prayer, I do not mean just a listing of things that we want God to do and then getting up from our knees. I'm not saying that we just lay out all that we want God to give us. Prayer is a time where we consciously shut out everything else, we quiet our minds, and we spend time with the God we love. And this too is a way of saying thank you. We appreciate what God has done for us, and therefore we want to spend time with him because of all that he's done and because of how much he loves us. And the Bible says because God loves us, we love him in return. You don't have to force yourself to spend time with someone you love. It comes naturally. You want to spend time with those you love, and in fact, you are willing to forsake other things and set them aside in order to have the time to spend with those you love. And the same ought to be true in our relationship with God. We are thankful for all that he has done, and thus we want to be in his presence. So I hope you see already that giving thanks goes well beyond saying the words. It fosters our worship with God through serving, singing, and sitting in his presence, all of which is worship. Now, the second thing I want you to see, we've only looked at the first two verses, so there's clearly more. The second thing I want you to see comes from verse 3, and that is giving thanks flows from our relationship with God. Now, in one sense, we've already been talking about this, but I want to get a little more specific here. The giving of thanks to God has no foundation unless we know the God to whom we are giving thanks. And so this verse commands us to know some things about God. That's why we've spent the last several months talking about the doctrines of our faith. It's one of the reasons we did that series on tier one doctrines, because we wanted to have knowledge about God. Now, there are some who claim that they don't want that. They turn their nose up at doctrine. They say, I'm not a theologian. I'm never going to be. What I need is practical advice for daily living. Give me applicational preaching and I'll be fine with that. And all of that sounds rather good. But as practical as that sounds, it's not practical at all. You cannot love, serve, or worship a God that you know nothing about. Because all three of those things, love, worship, and service, flow from your relationship with God. It is he who is God and none others. Again, we talked about that in our recent series. But in our day and age, that cannot be repeated enough. That there is one God, and he is the God who has revealed himself in the Bible. And that God is God alone. And both these terms that we see in verse 3, Lord and God, convey the idea of sovereignty and rule. He reigns over all the earth. 
which is why it says his praise is to be extended over all of the earth. And if all of that is true, it means that he reigns and rules over our lives. And therefore, we must submit to him. Now, again, I know people don't like that idea, nor do they like that word. But rightly understood, it is a good thing. It is good that my life is not in my hands. It is good that your life is not up to you. It is good that God is in control of our lives rather than we are. And all of this is true because we know him as creator. He is the one who has made us. We did not come into existence because of a big bang or long years of evolutionary advancement. We were created by God to whom we give thanks. And he goes on to say that we were created in his image and that we belong to him. Which means that God has a right to say what happens in our life. Because it is not my life. I know you might say that from time to time. This is my life and I can live it any way I want to. But that's not biblical. Especially if you're a believer because you've been bought with a price. Therefore, it is not your life to live any way you want. He created you. Now, if you make something, if you create something, if you're an artist of some sort or a builder, you make and create something, it's yours to do with as you please. You made it, you can do what you want to. And that flows over into our spiritual lives. Scripture says that the thing made does not have the right to say to the maker, why did you make me this way? And the, the general image that Scripture uses is the potter and the clay, we being the clay. The potter has a right to fashion the clay into anything he wants to fashion it into. And the clay does not look up to the potter and say, why did you do this to me? Because the clay is just that, it's clay. Now, I realize that all of us would like to change some things if we could. I wish, for example, that I had more hair. I mean, there's nothing I can do about that. I'm not going to go to those extremes that some people go to and, and try to fix that. It's just the way it is. I don't have good hair. Uh, I, I would like to have better eyesight. I've told you before, I'm blind without my contacts. But I don't have those things. I wish I was taller. I wish I had been a better athlete. But I can't change either one of those things. We tell kids in America all the time, you can be whatever you want to be. That's nonsense. They can't be whatever they want to be. I was never a good enough athlete to play professional football. I was certainly not tall enough to play professional basketball. And some of you have played golf with me, and so you know that I'm not good enough to be a pro golfer, which I would love to be. There are just some things that we cannot do because we were not created to do them while others were. But we can do everything that God created us to do and be because that's what we were created for. And that ought to be our focus, not you can be anything you want to be, but you can be anything that God created you to be. So we know God as creator, and secondly here, we see that we know God as redeemer. Three times it says his. We are his. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture, reminding us that we know him as redeemer, if indeed you've been redeemed. Because it is only those who have been redeemed by Christ who can make those kinds of statements that we belong to him. There is a distinction. Everybody is created by God, but everybody does not belong to God in the sense that they are a child of God. Only those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ are true children of God and can say, he is my God. This is a personal God to whom we relate. This is not some distant deity or an impersonal force. 
Jesus himself said that the sheep know his voice and they follow him. And that is exactly what we are to do, which gives us purpose and meaning in life. We see so many people who are directionless, hopeless, and yes, even angry. You might ask the question, why in a nation that is filled with so much do we have so much anger and other things? And the answer is in part because they do not understand what we see in verse 3. They do not understand that their purpose and meaning, their identity is found in Christ. That is what they were created to be, and without that, they are going to be purposeless and hopeless. Now, the more we know about sheep, the more we come to understand that this is not exactly a flattering comparison. When Jesus says, you are the sheep and I am the shepherd, it's not flattering. In those days, of course, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament days, A shepherd was a common occupation. If we go back to the Old Testament, we see even then that it was despised in many cases. You remember when Joseph's family came down to Egypt? What did Joseph tell them? Don't tell the Pharaoh that you're shepherds because that's despised in Egypt. And so while it was a common occupation, in some cases it wasn't necessarily looked up to. And the reason is in part because sheep are in desperate need of a shepherd because they are not smart enough to get by on their own. We are very familiar with this imagery from Psalm 23. Maybe you're familiar with it from John 10. In John 10, we find two of Jesus's I am statements where he says, I am the good shepherd. And then later in that passage, he says, I am the door of the sheep, meaning that he is the access, he is the way into eternal life. But back to the image of the shepherd and sheep. The shepherd protects those who are his sheep. He guards them from predators. Like sheep, we need constant protection, and we should be given thanks that God does protect us. The shepherd provides for his sheep. Again, Psalm 23, he leads them to green pastures and beside still waters. God provides everything we need, another reason to give thanks. The shepherd preserves his sheep just like God keeps us forever. And ultimately, the shepherd would die for his sheep. No mere hired man would do that, Jesus said, but the shepherd would, and that is exactly what Jesus did on our behalf. He died in our place, and thus we have reason to give thanks. You see, when you and I were created, we were created in the image of God, and we were redeemed by the sacrifice of God. And if we understand that, how can we help but give thanks? So out of our relationship with God flows our thanks to God. Again, we can turn this around. If we are not giving thanks to God, then it might be perhaps because we don't have a true relationship with God. Well, the last thing I want to mention comes from verses 4 and 5. And it says that we are to focus on the character of God. Giving thanks focuses on the character of God. As I said last week, we tend to focus our thanksgiving on what we have. Again, if you have that tradition of going around the table, you're likely to hear something like this. Well, I'm thankful that I'm healthy this year. I'm thankful that I have a job that can provide for my family. Or maybe you're thankful for what you don't have. I'm thankful that I don't have COVID. I'm thankful that I don't have something else. So the focus is always on our circumstances, good or bad. 
But here in our text, we see that the focus is not on circumstances, but on the character of God. And if that is our focus, then no matter where you stand in life, no matter how good your year has been or how bad it might have been, there are reason to give thanks because God's character never changes. The same thing the psalmist says in these verses, our reasons for giving thanks are also true today, no matter where you stand in life. And so beginning in verse 4, we have reasons to come into the presence of God with thankful hearts and minds and offer praise to Him. And then in verse 5, there are the specifics. But before we get to verse 5, I just want to ask, is that your attitude when you woke up this morning and got ready for worship? Did you come with thankful hearts because of who God is? Were you focused on what He's done for you or... Have you been focused on what he's not done for you? And that makes all the difference when we come to verse 5 as to whether we're really going to be ready to give thanks. And so in verse 5, the psalmist gives us three aspects of the character of God for which we can be thankful. This, of course, is not an exhaustive list. There are many more attributes of God, but here we find three. First, he states that the Lord is good. Now, notice that that is an absolute It comes with no qualification. He does not say the Lord is good when. He does not say the Lord is good if. This is a claim simply that God, by his character and nature, is a good God. But here again, we tend to measure that based on our circumstances. And hopefully you've heard me repeating that this morning. That theme has been throughout this sermon that our focus tends to be on our circumstances rather on the character of God. And so much of giving thanks tends to be contingent upon how things are going in our lives when it ought to be that we are giving thanks to God primarily on the basis of who he is and what he's done as revealed in his word. So back to this point, we tend to acknowledge that God is good when he's been good to us, when he's given us what we want, when he's answered our prayers in a timely manner or when he's kept us from hurt or heartache. We sort of have an unspeakable deal with God. You may not admit this, but many of us have this thinking, God, if I go to church, if I'm fairly faithful in how I try to serve you, then you've got to be good to me. That's our arrangement. That's the average arrangement for the average believer, whether it's spoken or not. We expect God to do good things for us and to prevent bad things happening to us as long as we are somewhat faithful to him. The problem arises, of course, when something not so good happens and we have that unspoken belief. And now we begin to question this fundamental character of God. Maybe maybe he's not so good. I mean, what else could explain why he would allow that into my life? Or maybe he's, at not, not, maybe he's at least not good to me. He might be good to everybody else, but he's not good to me. Otherwise, he would not have allowed this into my life. But we need to come to a firm conclusion, regardless of our circumstances, that God is good, that that is an essential part of his nature and character in spite of what is going on in our lives. The problem of pain and suffering has been a a theological problem in Christianity from the very start, and it will continue to be so. 
but God has revealed himself as a good God, the question then becomes, are we going to believe that? Can we trust that that is an essential part of his character, or are we going to focus on our circumstances, and if so, our thanks are going to dissipate? But if we can say we know without a shadow of a doubt that God is good, then we can be thankful for that. Secondly, the second aspect of his character revealed here is his enduring love. A love that endures forever. And there are several other psalms that repeat that phrase throughout the psalm. Now, I realize the love of God is perhaps the one characteristic of God that most of us can agree upon. It's just that oftentimes we don't understand the nature of that love because all we know is our love, and so we compare our love with the love of God. And so again, we might conclude that God's love rises and falls based on our commitment and service, or that God's love means only good things will happen to us, neither of which is correct. The love of God is seen most clearly in the sacrifice of His Son to bring about our redemption. Romans chapter 8 makes this very clear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the question then becomes, why do we have so many times when we feel unloved by God? Why do we question the love of God on a personal level? And again, the answer is the same. Because we are focused on our circumstances rather than the Scriptures and our Savior. And we allow our circumstances to lead us to unbiblical and therefore unhealthy conclusions about how God relates to us. And when that happens, giving thanks goes out the window. And so to get thanks back in our lives as a regular habit, we have to focus on the character of God. Again, as he has revealed himself in Scripture. Meaning that God is good and that God's love for you endures forever. And then finally, the third characteristic we see here is that God is a faithful God. And notice that this faithfulness is not just to you, but it's to the generations that come after you. And that ought to be an encouragement to every parent and grandparent. Now, that does not mean that that's a promise that all of your children and grandchildren will be saved. But it is a promise of the faithfulness of God to his children that that faithfulness extends to future generations. We are worried about so much, both on a personal and a national level. Perhaps when you gather this week, along with all of the other things that go along with Thanksgiving, there will also be the, the shaking of heads, the wringing of hands. I mean, what are we going to do? I just don't know how to fix what's going on in our family. I just don't know how to fix what's going on in our nation. How can we turn things around? And I realize that those are valid concerns that often become an overly focused concern in our lives, leaving us little room for giving thanks. And that's why I wanted to remind you this morning of the character of God that gives us plenty of room for giving thanks. He is a good God who loves you everlastingly and is faithful to you for generations. I know it's hard sometimes, especially for some people, to give thanks. We tend to compare ourselves with others and focus on what we do not have as a result of that comparison. Or we have expectations of God and what he is to do for us. And when those expectations are not met, 
we question all of the very attributes that we've talked about and therefore lose our contentment. And so I simply wanted to give you a simple reminder from a simple psalm that we should give thanks to God. We haven't dealt with any interpretive issues this morning. There is absolutely nothing in this psalm that is difficult to understand. We've not, we've not parsed anything. We've not defined anything. It is a very simple psalm. And yet, as straightforward as it is, it's often difficult to follow, which is why we need constant reminders and consistent practice to give thanks to God for who he is and what he's done. And I want to encourage you to continue doing that or to begin doing that today. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a good God, that you love us eternally, and that you are faithful both to us and to our generations. Forgive us for the times when we question all of that because we're focused on our circumstances. Forgive us when we doubt those very characteristics by which you've revealed yourself because of our comparisons or discontentment. I pray you would refocus us this morning on who you are. And as a result, we would give thanks, not just in word, but in worship and in serving and in coming into your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.